saw from the previous episodes that the British regulars under General Thomas Gage were besieged in Boston following the action at Lexington and Concord when Gage had sent men to confiscate the colonists' powder and munitions. These militiamen, under Commander-in-Chief Artemis Ward, kept the British regulars in Boston and unable to invade Massachusetts. Over the spring and summer of 1775, events transpired that made evident the need for a strong regular army to stand against the British. On June 14, 1775, Continental Congress voted to create an army, incorporating the 22,000 militiamen besieging Boston, 39 regiments of infantry, one regiment of artillery, and an additional artillery company, the Rhode Island Train of Artillery. They also began authorizing more units and regiments to be raised, such as 10 companies of riflemen from the combined colonies of Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Maryland. This was the first establishment of the Continental Army, which would evolve tremendously over the next several years. To lead this army, Congress elected George Washington, the Virginia native whose military experience surpassed most American-born officers and who had attended the first Virginia Convention, which led to the creation of the First Continental Congress. I'm Cambrielle Clackham, and welcome to Patriot Podcast. Today's episode is Support of the Glorious Cause. On July 16, 1775, George Washington addressed Continental Congress over which John Hancock presided. Mr. President, though I am truly sensible of the high honor done me in this appointment, yet I feel great distress from a consciousness that my abilities and military experience may not be equal to the extensive and important trust. However, as the Congress desire it, I will enter upon the momentous duty and exert every power I possess in their service and for the support of the glorious cause. I beg they will accept my most cordial thanks for this distinguished testimony of their approbation. But lest some unlucky event should happen unfavorable to my reputation, I beg it may be remembered by every gentleman in the room that I this day declare with, uh, with the utmost sincerity, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. As to pay, sir, I beg leave to assure the Congress that, as no pecuniary consideration could have tempted me to accept this arduous employment at the expense of my domestic ease and happiness, I do not wish to make any profit from it. I will keep an exact account of my expenses, those I doubt not they will discharge, and that is all I desire." Washington's military career had been marked with successes and failures up to that point. He had been forced to surrender Fort Necessity in a disastrous defeat that touched off the beginning of the Seven Years' War. He had also been promoted commander of Virginia militia due to his service during that war. As I said in my last episode, Washington was the most obvious choice to many people, even though both Charles Lee and Horatio Gates had expected the honor. Washington himself had not sought command, only to serve. On June 18th, one day before the second anniversary of his stepdaughter's death, he wrote to his wife, Martha, 
Far from seeking this appointment, I have used every endeavor in my power to avoid it, not only from my unwillingness to part with you and the family, but from a consciousness of its being a trust too great for my capacity. But, as it has been a kind of destiny that has thrown me upon this service, I shall hope that my undertaking of it is designed to answer some good purpose. He could hardly have foreseen what good purpose he would serve. He very much enjoyed the tranquil life of farming and tending his home, crops, and family. So leaving all of that behind for an unforeseeable amount of time was truly difficult. However, like many colonists, he no doubt expected an amicable conclusion rather than the eight-year bloody war, the declaring of independence, and all that would follow. To his stepson, John Park, or Jackie Custis, he wrote, My great concern upon this occasion is the thoughts of leaving your mother under the uneasiness which I know this affair will throw her into. I therefore hope, expect, and indeed have no doubt of your using every means in your power to keep up her spirits. I have, I must confess, very uneasy feelings on her account, but as it has been a kind of unavoidable necessity which has led me into this appointment, I shall more readily hope that success will attend it and crown our meetings with happiness. I am always pleased with yours and Nellie's abidance at Mount Vernon. I think it absolutely necessary for the peace and satisfaction of your mother. Four major generals were appointed to support Washington. Artemis Ward as Washington's adjutant, Philip Schuyler, Israel Putnam, and Charles Lee to be paid each $166 a month. Ward would prove invaluable to organizing the Continental Army in the coming months, something I will discuss further in my next episode. Eight brigadier generals were also appointed to be paid $125 a month. Seth Pomeroy, Richard Montgomery, David Worcester, William Heath, Joseph Spencer, John Thomas, John Sullivan, and Nathaniel Green. Pomeroy, a 69-year-old gunsmith from Northampton, Massachusetts, was in frail health, so he declined his post, continuing to serve in the militia until his untimely death. Horatio Gates, the British Army major who had built his Traveler's Rest estate in modern-day West Virginia, was commissioned a brigadier general, appointed as adjutant general. On June 25th, Major General Philip Schuyler was assigned to command the New York Department. Two days later, Congress would authorize the invasion of Quebec, which will be a major topic of discussion in my next episode, so stay tuned for that. Washington designated the following ribbons, or sashes, to distinguish the ranks. The commander-in-chief by a light blue ribbon wore across his breast, between his coat and waistcoat. The majors and brigadiers general, by a pink ribbon, wore in the like manner. The aides de camp by a green ribbon. Later, on July 24th, Washington issued orders to distinguish the major generals from the brigadiers with a purple ribbon. On the appointment of staff for the commander-in-chief, Washington wrote, Thomas Mifflin, Esquire, is appointed by the general one of his aides de camps. 
Joseph Reed Esquire is in like manner appointed secretary to the general, and they are in future to be considered and regarded as such. Washington and Lee reached headquarters at Cambridge, Massachusetts, not long after the Battle of Bunker Hill, on July 2, 1775. Ahead of Washington lie an enormous task, creating an army from bands of poorly trained and equipped militiamen. Colonial America did not have a regular standing army, relying instead on the militia. Preparing these men to go toe-to-toe with career soldiers was going to be no small feat. Knowing how an encampment could breed disease and filth, Washington issued orders for the hygiene of his troops. As the health of an army principally depends upon cleanliness, it is recommended in the strongest manner to the commanding officer of corps, posts, and detachments to be strictly diligent in ordering the necessaries to be filled up once a week and new ones dug, the streets of the encampments and lines to be swept daily and all offal and carrion near the camp to be immediately buried." the officers commanding in barracks or quarters to be answerable that they are swept every morning and all filth and dirt removed from about the houses. Next to cleanliness, nothing is more conducive to a soldier's health than dressing his provisions in a decent and proper manner. The officers commanding companies should therefore daily inspect the camp kitchens and see the men dress their food in a wholesome way. Later orders stated, All officers are required and expected to pay diligent attention, to keep their men neat and clean, to visit them often at their quarters, and inculcate upon them the necessity of cleanliness as essential to their health and service. They are particularly to see that they have straw to lay on, if to be had, and to make it known if they are destitute of this article." They are also to take care that necessaries be provided in the camps and frequently filled up to prevent their being offensive and unhealthy. Proper notice will be taken of such officers and men as distinguish themselves by their attention to these necessary duties. In spite of this, on July 24th, Washington wrote, Report being this morning made to the general that the main guard room is kept abominably filthy and dirty. A particularly problematic illness at that time was smallpox, and at Cambridge, by Fresh Pond, there was a hospital set up specifically for smallpox patients. In fact, Ward had ordered daily inspections for symptoms of smallpox. Therefore, Washington ordered, No person is to be allowed to go to Freshwater Pond, a fishing, or on any other occasion, as there may be danger of introducing the smallpox into the army. In colonial times, there was no country of America. The individual colonies were separate entities. In fact, 21 years prior, at the outset of the French and Indian War, Benjamin Franklin had sketched his now-famous Join or Die cartoon. The cartoon featured the Carolinas, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and New England all as disjointed parts of a single snake. Unity between the colonies, and then states, would continue to be a very serious issue in America, particularly where the new government and military were involved. 
George Washington wrote the following on July 4th, 1775. The Continental Congress, having now taken all the troops of the several colonies which have been raised, or which may be hereafter raised, for the support and defense of the liberties of America, into their pay and service, they are now the troops of the United Provinces of North America, and it is hoped that all distinctions of colonies will be laid aside, so that one and the same spirit may animate the whole, and the only contest be who shall render on this great and trying occasion the most essential service to the great and common cause in which we are all engaged." Of their situation and defenses, Washington wrote to Thomas Everard, the court clerk in Williamsburg, Virginia, The enemy and we are very near neighbors. Our advanced works are not more than five or six hundred yards from theirs, and the main body of the two armies scarce a mile. We see everything that passes, and that is all we can do, as they keep close on the two peninsulas of Boston and Charlestown, both of which are surrounded with ships of war, floating batteries, and etc., and the narrow necks of land leading into them fortified in such a manner as not to be forced without a very considerable slaughter, if practicable at all. On July 3rd, Washington issued these general orders. The colonels or commanding officers of each regiment are ordered forthwith to make two returns of the number of men in their respective regiments, distinguishing such as are sick, wounded, or absent on furlough, and also the quantity of ammunition each regiment now has. Washington was very disappointed that one of the first reports he received was of a court-martial for cowardice, as mentioned in the prior episode, a certain artilleryman named John Callender had been fleeing down Bunker Hill, telling General Israel Putnam that he had no cartridges. Putnam had found this to be untrue, but in court another officer testified that the ammunition available was not the correct size for the pieces they were to attend. In addition, Washington's letters and general orders in those first few weeks reveal that the army had several violators to deal with, thieves, drunks, and other examples of misconduct. Discipline and order would need to be enforced. In general orders written June 14th, Washington wrote, Daniel Carmiel, a soldier in Colonel Patterson's regiment, tried for disobedience of orders, for re-enlisting and taking advance money twice over, and for drunkenness, is found guilty of the several charges and ordered to be whipped upon the bare back with 39 lashes and discharged from the army. The general approves the sentence and orders it to be executed tomorrow morning at the head of the regiment he belongs to. On July 4, 1775, Washington wrote, It is required and expected that exact discipline be observed and due subordination prevail through the whole army as a failure in these most essential points must necessarily produce extreme hazard, disorder, and confusion and end in shameful disappointment and disgrace. The general most earnestly requires and expects a due observance of these articles of war established for the government of the army, which forbid profane cursing, swearing, and drunkenness, 
and in like manner requires and expects of all officers and soldiers not engaged on actual duty a punctual attendance on divine service to implore the blessings of heaven upon the means used for our safety and defense. In the beginning, the Continental Army only asked short enlistment terms, usually several months or one year. These men had homes, farms, families, and shops that would suffer from their lengthy absences. In 1775, none but a radical few were even talking at all about actual independence from Great Britain, and there was still hope that the colonies might reach an agreeable resolution. Even Washington could not have known when he left Philadelphia for Cambridge that he would not see Mount Vernon for more than six years. On June 26th, he had addressed the New York Provincial Congress. May your warmest wish be realized in the success of America at this important and interesting period, and be assured that every exertion of my worthy colleagues and myself will be equally extended to the reestablishment of peace and harmony between the mother country and the colonies. Men who enlisted in the Continental Army were asked, if possible, to supply their own firelocks, hatchets, cartridge cases, ammunitions, blankets, and other necessary items that the newborn army just simply did not have. Virtually all colonists, with the exception of a few, such as Quakers, were going to have at least one firelock with powder and shot on hand. Even still, the army had tremendous trouble stocking enough firepower for a war. At the outset of the war, only Oswald Eves' mill in Frankfort, Pennsylvania was producing gunpowder for the colonies. Ward had requested the various committees of safety to drum up as much powder as possible, and many did. The Continental Army started out with about 80,000 pounds of powder, but that was not as great as it might seem, and inadequate shelter would cause it to be dis diminished. Reckless waste of powder and shot was an issue that Washington had to address, one familiar to him from his time as commander of the Virginia militia. In general orders on July 4th, he wrote, It is strictly required and commanded that there be no firing of cannon or small arms from any of the lines or elsewhere except in the case of necessary immediate defense or special order given for that purpose. By August, Washington received a report that they had but half a pound of powder for each soldier, a devastating reality that, according to Brigadier General John Sullivan, rendered the commander-in-chief speechless for half an hour. Upon the subject of powder, Washington wrote to Connecticut Governor Jonathan Trumbull, I am at a loss what to say. Our necessities are so great, and it is of such infinite importance that this army should have a full supply. To John Hancock, he wrote, You will find, sir, a great want of powder in the provincial army, which I sincerely hope the Congress will supply as speedily and as effectually as is in their power. Congress sent ships to steal British powder from the magazine in Bermuda, which they effected with the help of some residents of Bermuda. This helped remedy the dire shortage. British Parliament had passed several currency acts in prior decades restricting the ability to use paper money printed in the colonies. In 
They could print paper notes, but the notes had no legal face value. They were more like credit. Currency in colonial America varied. Here in Virginia, tobacco was used as currency. Property and goods were sold for pounds of tobacco. Contractors, clergymen, and government officials were paid in pounds of tobacco. Spanish milled dollars were the most common specie or hard ready money used in the colonies. In 1773, the most recent currency acts were repealed, giving the colonists rights to print and spend paper bills. On June 18, 1775, George Washington wrote to Jackie Custis, The Congress, for I am at liberty to say as much, are about to strike two million of dollars as continental currency for the support of the war as Great Britain seems determined to force us into, and there will be at least 15,000 raised as a continental army. Shortly after, continental bills were printed to cover military spending, but their value would decline sharply, partially because of a British counterfeiting scheme to devalue them. Washington had served closely with General Thomas Gage during the Seven Years' War, and an examination of his personal letters and diary entries reveals the familiarity the two once shared. Now, the two former comrades were on opposing sides, Gage besieged by Washington. Word reached the Continental Commander of ill treatment by the British of American prisoners, particularly the wounded, who were being thrown into a common jail, the wounded receiving amputations and such poor care that they died from infections. Citizens were held on suspicion of espionage, one of which, John Leach, wrote that the prisoners were starving, and when some asked for bread, they were told to eat nail heads from the wooden planks. Washington wrote to Gage that the British commander would henceforth set the tone of the treatment of prisoners in the conflict. If Washington heard that his men were being treated fairly by Gage, he would treat the, Br the British prisoners in kind. If he continued to hear that Gage was treating American prisoners like criminals, he would treat the British prisoners like criminals. Shortly thereafter, Gage would be replaced, which I will discuss further in the next episode. Well, that is today's episode, and in the next episode, I will deal with the New York Department and the invasion of Quebec. Colonel Henry Knox will leave to get cannon from Ticonderoga, and the Virginia Patriots will win an incredible victory against Lord Dunmore's army at Great Bridge. If you're enjoying this podcast, check out my Facebook and Instagram accounts for This Day in Revolutionary History and more Revolutionary War Facts. The username for both of those accounts is Snows Island 1780. That's no caps, no punctuation, S-N-O-W-S-I-S-L-A-N-D-1780. Also, if you appreciate the research, writing, and recording I do, I ask you to consider supporting my podcast, even at a dollar a month. That helps me to keep producing this material. And finally, if you live in the Hampton Roads area or are planning a trip there anytime soon, check out Victory Walking Tours. I give a tour of Yorktown and discuss the history of the York River, Yorktown, and the siege that effectively ended the Revolutionary War. You can book those tickets at www. YorktownVictory.com. And for a limited time, I'm also on Save 30, which is like a local group on here in Virginia. It's um, 
It's just at save30.com. Go to the uh, Williamsburg, Yorktown, Peninsula section under Life Health Style Activities. And my tickets are available there at 30% off. So that's $11.55 for an adult tour, which would normally run $16.50.